This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Her name is Sharon French, and she is the head of Beta Solutions at Oppenheimer Funds. She has a storied career stopping at such places as J.P. Morgan Chase, Alliance Bernstein, and BlackRock, amongst others. Uh, she has been an instrumental person in the development and growth of the ETF sector, as well as a very active participant in the ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance uh, sector of investing. She is consistently named one of the most influential people in finance. Most recently, Cranes had their list of uh, 40 women, but find the list of 100 most influential women in markets, investing, finance, and Sharon is uh, invariably on that list. You will find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with Sharon French of Oppenheimer Funds. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Sharon French. She is the head of Beta Solutions at Oppenheimer Funds, where she also implements the firm's ESG efforts, as well as oversees a number of uh, smart beta ETF products and solutions. She has previously worked at such storied firms as BlackRock, Alliance Bernstein, uh, Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, she's a graduate of Wharton School of Business and serves on the Board of Women in ETFs. Sharon French, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. I'm glad to be here. We've been talking about doing this now for <laughs> a long time. I'm glad we finally got you in the studios to have this conversation. Let's talk a little bit about your career. You began back at J.P. Morgan Chase when they were really a much smaller shop, weren't they? Yes, yes, down on Water Street, one Water Street, right across from the Staten Island Ferry. What what was Chase? Yeah, what were they like then and what was your role with them? Sure. So, I uh, graduated with a management degree, concentration in finance. So I went into a sort of global training program with them. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, much smaller at the time, you know, still very regionally based. Um, you know, the the project that I was working on is really how to define profitability for their different product lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got a chance very early in my career to travel abroad to, I lived in Paris, I lived in London, I lived in Milan, Madrid, Frankfurt, doing cost studies with country managers, and then making a recommendation to, you know, uh, either demarket a product or, or, you know, sort of focus in a particular area. And so I was definitely over my skis looking back. I don't know that I knew really what I was doing, but I certainly learned a lot. Well, this is was this right out of grad school? They start sending you around this the world? This was right out of undergrad. Right. Yes, right out of undergrad. So I was young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so but you have to work really hard the first year and then, you know, sort of, um, you know, compete to go overseas. So uh-huh. thankfully, you know, I've never been shy to hard work. Uh-huh. And so they, you know, gave me the opportunity and I jumped at it. So you go from... Chase to Wharton. Where do you go? No, so my undergrads from University of Delaware. Wharton is my um, my certified uh, investment management analyst designation. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so, where did you go from from UPenn? Uh, so, so then I just went straight into Chase. Right. So I oh, okay. started my career in global banking, then moved into brokerage, then asset management. Gotcha. Yeah. So, all right. So then you go from how how do you end up at BlackRock? 
right in the middle of the entire build-out of iShares. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. That was right after Larry Fink bought BGI. So, mm-hmm. right, I think that deal closed December 2009. And look, you know, I certainly have a, an appreciation, a broad appreciation for financial services in general, because my journey and career progression was, like I said, global banking, wealth management, brokerage platforms, really sure Salima Brothers up through what is now called Morgan Stanley. Um, and then I went into asset management, always on the active or fundamental active side, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what people like you and I grew up with, the mutual fund. But what really drove me crazy at Alliance Bernstein was that we would go into an institutional presentation, right? So you've got the committee there, you've got the chief investment officer, and we'd be trying to sell whatever strategy. Mm -hmm. And invariably, probably 50% of the time, we would lose to BGI, Northern Trust, State Street, because of a passive mandate. And, you know, what I was trying to articulate to the chief investment officer is that the the real prudent way to run the pension fund, as an example, is to figure out how to combine intelligent alpha with efficient beta. Right. So that there's really room for both of us. So what, again, intellectually stuck in my brain is I cannot really, as a practitioner, talk about the indexed, enhanced index or, or beta side of the business. And so I got a call from a recruiter. James Beck, wonderful recruiter here in New York City, and they had a position at iShares. And mm-hmm. I loved Alliance Bernstein. Uh, Lou Sanders, especially as a leader, was was just a legend. They had such a fabulous research group, especially in the 90s, right into the teeth Absolutely. of the Absolutely. And Bernstein plus Alliance was sort of like, boom, right. right? It was just a fabulous combination. So I never thought I would leave. But this, I had this nagging thing in my brain, intellectually, as a professional, that I needed to satisfy. Mm -hmm. I needed to be able to talk about both sides of the investment management industry, again, as as a professional. So that's really why I went. And I got to tell you, and of course, I got, you know, I got grilled and everybody said to me, oh, you're going to the dark side. And I guess I suppose I did. But I did it, you know, deliberately. Well, by dark side, you mean um, more efficient and lower cost or dark side, just the competition? Dark side, anything passive, right? right? From fundamental active into the dark side of indexing. Uh, you, you, are, you are dead right when you say they're not mutually exclusive. They're yeah. complementary. And That's I don't right. understand why people, That's I guess right. when you're losing business and we've seen the flows have just been, right. when you started at iShares, did you ever imagine Vanguard would be $5 trillion, BlackRock would be $6 trillion, and no. a decade of flows would shift from active to passive the way we've seen? No, I really didn't. And, and look, you and I both know that I think 2008 really propelled that forward dramatically. But but sure. when I joined iShares, Vanguard and State Street were, were certainly above iShares in terms of the league tables. Mm-hmm. But iShares came on strong. And, and one of the big strategic moves that iShares made, and this is right when Mark Weedman took over in 2011, maybe nine months after, is they you know they were losing the core positions to Vanguard, right? They, uh-huh. were, they were being relegated to the satellites. And so they came out with the core series, right? Sort of replicating Vanguard's core products lower cost, at a lower very fee. Basic, and right. that was a big game changer. I mean, certainly USMV, which rivaled SPLV and had a better construction, took a lot of assets in low vol. So they, you know, they, they really made a lot of good strategic moves. I'm fascinated by Larry Fink in 2009 yeah. when everybody is still stinging from the GFC, from the financial crisis, says, no, no, now's the time when we're going to make a giant purchase and totally reformulate the firm. That is one of the great 
all-time pivots in, in history. And if you recall the time, everyone thought, oh my gosh, he's totally overpaying for this BGI. And lost everybody's his mind. laughing. Right. He's laughing all his way to the bank. Right. right? And and now they are literally yeah. the biggest shop in yeah. the world. Yeah, yeah. So so you were there at a time when the growth was really yeah, ramping it up. Was. It what was. was that experience like? So here's how I describe in many of us who have been at iShares and have since left and gone on to really wonderful things. It's like going to boot camp for the special forces. I knew you were going to use that metaphor because I've attended a number of conferences where you and I have both spoken and that crew of ETF people all seem to have gone through the same baptism of fire. Yeah. Is that yeah, a, is that a yeah. fair way it's to describe it? It's absolutely fair. Again, if you have anybody else on your show who's who was there for a period of time and left, we all say wonderfully positive things about the experience and I mean that oh so genuinely. Because every single day you are walking into battle, the bar is set so high uh-huh. for everything that you have to achieve. And Larry Fink's expectations are real. They 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 are quite lofty for everybody. And so, you know, you really sharpen your skill set that when you get out, you get out. Like you are a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL or right. call it what you will, right? So therefore you are very hireable. People love to take people from BlackRock. Now difficult culture because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I absolutely look back at that time in my life as a, a wonderful experience that's shaped a lot of who I am today. And, and the proof is how successful they've become. Whatever they're doing, it seems to be working. Yeah. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Sharon French. She is the head of Beta Solutions at Oppenheimer Funds, where she oversees smart beta products as well as ESG efforts. Um, before we move on to what you're currently doing at Oppenheimer, I have one last uh, BlackRock question. So you were head of private client and institutions at BlackRock. Mm-hmm. What did that work entail on a day-to-day basis? What, were you basically in branding and marketing, or were you Frontline dealing with CIOs and investment committees. Yeah, frontline. Good question. Um, uh, yeah, so it so institutional, which was also a, a a responsibility of mine at Alliance Bernstein. So institutional and private banks. Mm-hmm. So you know, we certainly je- dealt with J.P. Morgan private bank quite a bit, and a lot of the others, Wells Fargo, et cetera. You know them well. Um, and so it was it was really a strong product development client fit role mm-hmm. at that time the 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 iShares you know product lineup if you will was growing pretty dramatically but it was very closely connected and linked to certain channels mm-hmm. so the channel Namely that retail i uh, exactly RIAs. that's mm-hmm. act- now they're they're pure beta you know index stuff you know the um, some institutional clients were using as trading vehicles, but uh-huh. they certainly were looking to get away from that, specifically within Smart Beta. First Trust was coming up very fast in the in the sort of rearview mirror at the time. Um, so we had to sort of pivot and balance between our, our pure beta market cap strategies, which is really where they started, into how do we tilt a particular product more fundamentally. And a lot of the feedback that we were getting for that product development was driven exactly from some of the private banks that we worked with and some of the larger institutions. Hmm, Quite interesting. So let's talk about beta solutions, which is kind of a a mouthful to, (laughs) instead of just saying beta. So let me just start with the obvious question. What's the difference between beta solutions 
yeah. and basic indexing. Yeah. Well, so, and there's a reason why it's called that. So I, I assume there was. Yeah, right. When I was hired to Oppenheimer Funds, it was a very deliberate decision by uh, Art Steinmetz, the CEO, to really, you know, commit and go full force into the ETF business, utilizing smart beta, taking a pass on market cap, because there's certainly big players who, you know, right. corner that market. Hard, hard to add value there if That's you're right. a smaller or even a mid-sized player there, right? That's right. And so he sort of wanted to call the unit. So it's a it, this is a sort of a, 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 st- a, a independently run, if you will, operating unit within Oppenheimer Funds, which gives us the space and the focus and the commitment to sort of build our business alongside of our active business. But he wanted to call it Smart Beta. And I said, you know, is that really what we're trying to do? Aren't we, aren't we trying to take a beta concept right. and wrap it in whatever it makes sense to wrap it in, whether it's an ETF, a fund, a separate account, a USIT. So shouldn't this be called beta solutions? Because if we are pigeonholing ourselves just into smart beta, and you know, for the longest time, people really didn't know what smart beta was. It had all all kinds of names, strategic beta, alternative beta. Fundamental indexing. Exactly. Probably the most descriptive. Are, are you on the side of the fence that thinks the phrase smart beta is a marketing term? I am on that side of the so fence. So you're, you're not a fan of that. I know a lot of people not. just cringe every time yeah. they hear yeah. the term. Because if you think about it, if beta is just what the market's giving you, what is yeah. how, how are you modifying that with smart? I like alternatively weighted, right? Because okay. I, I think of I think of buying the market, right, which right. is market cap, and certainly s- favors certain stocks or sectors. Which you know, there's always been concentration risk in that approach. Sure. Some people still want it, which is fine. But there's better ways and different choices on how to drive that risk return profile through alternatively weighting the index. And I, I really do believe that. I remember way back when I think it was Guggenheim who that's, had the equal weighted. That's S&P right, RSP. Yeah, and that was suddenly like. Like, wow, so you don't have right. to market cap weighted? Yeah. It was never giants, although it certainly has grown. Yeah. But it was always, hmm, you mean there's a different way to do this? It's kind of surprising that the smart beta move hadn't begun right. earlier because people were clearly thinking about ways to look at indexing that wasn't just cap weighted. That's right. And what I'm really encouraged by, Barry, is that if you look at flows in 2017 versus 2018, smart mm-hmm. beta of the total pie of ETF flows was about 12% really? in 2017. In 2018, it was 25%. That's giant. It seems to have plateaued somewhat now, right? Or is it still growing? It's still growing. Yeah, it's still growing. More I mean, slowly? S- some of the, uh, well, you know, I mean, this year, I mean, I haven't seen uh, uh, April numbers yet, right. but it's it's had pretty healthy growth this year. You know, that I, I know that it's over 25%, whether it will double. I mean, it's, it doubled right. from 2017 to 2018. That's whether it will double, that's, that's a bit of a stretch. But the point of the matter is, we knew we would get smart beta market share from three places. The first is underperforming active mm-hmm. and you know sort of morning star one and two star rated funds right we certainly saw it there um the just the sheer growth of smart beta trying to get our unfair share of that and that's right. the growth i'm talking about from 2017 to 2018 doubling and then passive so as people got more educated about the merits of alternatively weighted some of the you know uh sort of traditional passive buyers started to move towards and understand what they were getting by paying in some cases 20 basis points more to get a smart beta product they started to move parts of their portfolio to smart beta from having it be all passive so there were three pillars by which we gathered market share Mm -hmm. 
And we're about five billion today. And from our our start, it's about a forty nine percent Kager. So we're pretty happy with. So the so growth. let's since you brought that up, let's talk about what Oppenheimer's portfolio options look like. So you have the alternative weighting. You're saying is we about do. five billion. Yeah. What are the other ETF offerings they have in either the beta or the yeah. non-beta uh, op- opportunities? Sure, sure. So we have 20 equity strategies, um, starting out with revenue-weighted. Uh-huh. Revenue-weighted. Um, so that's a traditional smart beta fundamental it indexing. It is, absolutely, yeah. And that is uh, due to a small acquisition we made back at the end of 2015 mm-hmm. of revenue shares. Um, really kept five of those products and then built that suite out. And then we started to move into factors, and we've got a, a really nice partnership with FTSE Russell. Mm-hmm. We introduced dynamic multi-factor, which we're super proud of. We were one of the first, us and PIMCO. So this is an active? No, it's, it. well, interesting. We have It's sort of an active overlay. Mm-hmm. So it's a macro signal coming from our global multi-asset group. Got it. Which takes um, sort of leading economic indicators, as well as the um, sort of the momentum signals from the market Mm -hmm. and tells us monthly whether we're either in a recovery, an expansion, a contraction, or a slowdown. Mm -hmm. And then we take the five factors and we weight them depending upon which market regime we're in. And so based on that, you will alter within the ETF the weighting of the exactly. different Exactly. Uh, so groups. it is rules-based, but mm-hmm. it is informed by this active signal. And it has done phenomenal. We launched it in November 2017. It's at the top of the category. So this is kind of an interesting space because people have been talking about making, it's ironic how beta has driven so much of ETFs, uh, but we're talking about making ETFs more dynamic and more active based on a variety of other inputs. So this one is rules-based, driven by a series of economic in- inputs. Any other dynamic or active ETFs, current or on the horizon? Well, interestingly, so we did file with mm-hmm. the SEC for a senior loan product. We've got a very, very uh, well-recognized and successful senior loan uh, franchise. Fixed income or equity? Fixed income. Okay. Right. So so we were making our foray into the fixed income marketplace. Uh, we also filed for short duration uh, ETFs, some liquidity enhanced ETFs. And all these are not to a specific index, they're all dynamic and can change. Well, these are actually active. So what we are doing is filing active fixed income ETFs with some of our key teams at Oppenheimer Funds. And had we not been bought by Invesco, um, because those products are just sitting on the shelf, those approvals by the SEC are sitting on the shelf, we would have launched fixed income active um, to sort of, you know, build out the asset allocation. Sure. And all the academic research says that while active may not necessarily create a lot of value in the equity side, it really can create value on fixed income. It does, absolutely. And I think you know firms who are thinking about that should really look at sort of what are some of their core competencies on the fixed income side. Certainly we've seen you know Gunlock and Gross do well with sure. their products when they came out and they're sort of leading the fixed income active ETF space. But we really believe that, that there's um, something in that for investors. I think the jury's still out on the equity side. Sure. I mean, we saw the big you know Presidian approval. That was a big development a couple of weeks ago. I'm not familiar with that ETF? What was the approval? It's, um, the company is Presidian, and they have been working with the SEC to try to get an approval for a uh, non-transparent solution. Oh, okay. I recall yeah, yeah, reading yeah, something yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, quite, yeah, quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Sharon French. She is the head of 
beta solutions for Oppenheimer funds. She also covers environmental, social, and governance efforts at the firm. She is a graduate of the Wharton School of Business and sits on the board of women in ETFs. So, so let's talk about what's going on um, with women in the ETF space. Tell us a little bit about Women in ETFs, the board that you're on, uh, and what is that group about and what are they looking to accomplish? Yeah, I would love to talk about that. Thank you for the question. So I'm co-president uh, with Jillian Del Signor, JP Morgan of Women in ETFs. I have been a uh, global governance committee and board member since the beginning. Um, How long has this been around for? Just over five years. We just hit our five-year anniversary in that's January. A, that's a Decent, you know, these days, five years to, for something to survive and grow is not a bad thing. And I have to tell you, we are growing so fast. We're global. Um, so we're in EMEA as well as Asia Pac and Canada. Um, we've got uh, 10 chapters. We're just about to hit 5,000 members wow. globally. That's fantastic. And this, Barry, this hit at the heart of what I really think is needed within the ETF industry. There are women of Wall Street. There are women in hedge funds. Um, but this was really something that we heard a lot as we believe that within financial services, there a lot of women gravitate to the ETF ecosystem, whether you're an authorized Why participant. We have really drilled down with some theories on this, but we would love to get a research partner to prove it. Well, let me mansplain this to you. Okay, please. <laughs> you're the expert. I have no idea. I was just kidding. Um, we think it's innovation. We think women are very drawn to innovation and um, evolution. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of women in supporting the ETF industry on the legal side. There's a lot on the trading side, especially authorized participants and market makers. You and I know many of them. Sure. Um, there are a lot of women leading ETF businesses. Uh, there are a lot of women in, in ETF distribution, again, like my co-president, Jillian Del Signor over at JP Morgan. Um, there are also, you know, heads of products. I mean, uh, they're the head of uh, the ETF business at JP Morgan also used to be the head of product, both at iShares mm -hmm. and, and JP Morgan. So, so there is just a, a huge concentration of women within the ETF industry that we felt a need to get connected. So our mission is to connect, support, and inspire. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really having some of the more senior executives within ETFs mentor and sponsor and connect the, the women who are joining us who are just starting out in the industry. Um, and we have events all over the world. And by the way, we do encourage men. Mm -hmm. uh, there are well over 10% of our membership is men. We're hoping to get it up to 2025 uh, because we are trying to continue to push forward the agenda of gender equality and the diversity of thought. And so one of our big things that we do every International Women's Day is ring the bell at every stock exchange around the world huh, with uh, the Sustainable Stock Exchange in the UN. And that's a fabulous, fabulous, high-profile way to promote gender equality within the ecosystem. And it's our five-year anniversary, so we're going to be doing events uh, both in uh, Hong Kong, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, and uh, Toronto. So it, it's funny you mentioned five years. July will be five years that this show has been around. And when I was first beginning and was able to wrestle up a, a female guest, one of the questions was always something corny like, so what's it like being a gal in a man's industry? And I'm being a little sarcastic, and I'm thrilled that I get to ask a question. So tell us about how you're yeah. driving mm -hmm. 
yeah. the growth of ETFs. You can see just over the past five years how much things have, have changed. It's really so different. And I'm curious, do you think it's the fact that the ETF space was so new, you did not have that sclerotic old boys network cemented in place? It was easier yeah. to um, break through into that space without the, the usual obstacles? I think that's very valid. I think that's a very big part of it. I mean, look, I, you know, I've been around for over 30 years, so I did grow up in the environment. You started you when you were noted. nine, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, you sort of, because of, of that, you know, for me personally, I've sort of become Teflon coated because right. you needed to be. That's your rep. <laughs> but you, you know, now it's much more supportive. I mean, mm -hmm. the industry has changed. I do have to say, glacially, it oh. is better to Today, but I right. would have preferred it to be in leaps and strides. But, um, but, but whether it's you know women on Wall Street, the Financial Women's Association, hundred women's in hedge funds, women in ETFs. I mean, there's now organizations that have a genuine interest in continuing to promote women, um, give them the tools and resources in order to, to advocate for themselves, mm -hmm. negotiate for a job or a better raise. Um, we have a speakers bureau. So we have a lot of people in media like you. T tell us about the speakers bureau yeah. because um, I introduced them to one of the women who worked for me who actually speaks all around the world and is a, a highly sought after speaker, Blair Duquesne, she started working with the speakers group who who right. put together the so together let, the speakers yes, group. Yes, yeah. So thank you. And and look, we're we're sort of spoon feeding the media who right. are 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 having a hard time finding female speakers. So Elizabeth Kashner at Faxet and Linda Zhang with she has right. her own firm purview. Uh, we talked a lot about it, and that's what we do at Women in ETFs. We just get it done. So they came together, and they reached out to everybody, and you have to you have to apply, and you have to be qualified right. in certain topics and media trained in order to be part of our Speakers Bureau. I think we're up to, Linda last said on our last call, I think we're up to 40 Wow. You know, professionals who are, you know, very well experienced in certain key segments of the market. So we're taking this list and we're giving it to people like you. We're giving it to Inside ETS. We're giving it to Tom Lydon at ETF Trends. We're giving it to whoever needs female speakers to try to get a more diversity of thought and equal representation in the media. I won't I won't mention the group, but there was an article not too long ago about a conference and they the photo is the panel. On diversity, and it's six white dudes. Exactly. And it's pretty, yeah. hey, listen, you guys really, you got to make a little bit more yeah. of an effort than, That's right. look, I found six white guys, let's let's have a Yeah, a that, that one, I know exactly which one you're talking about. That won't happen again. <laughs> right. But again, we- Did you guys tag them and say, oh, absolutely. boys, what are you idiots we doing? We absolutely did. That's yes. kind of yes. an embarrassing it is. look it's embarrassing. On, on diversity. That's right. I might be exaggerating slightly, but the photo I saw was like, what? Yes. No, that's got to be the, yes. you know, how to raise money for a head fund or something else yeah. male dominated yeah. type of yeah. uh, a panel that was pretty hilarious yeah and so sometimes you just need to take action that's what we did we have a, a list of 40 women and growing so depending upon the topic we certainly will have three to five women to choose from that 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 makes a whole lot of sense i'm barry ritholtz you're listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio my extra special guest this week is sharon french she runs the beta solutions group at oppenheimer funds Let's talk a little bit about environmental, social, and governance investing. What I keep hearing is we're on the leading edge of a 30-plus trillion dollar generational wealth transfer. Um, millennials and women are the people most interested in investing in the environment and social-based causes. 
and yet the pickup has been so slow. Mm. What do you make of that? Yeah, and and if you look at the numbers in retail in the U.S., right? So you always have to peel the onion. Uh, the adoption has been slow within the, what I call the sustainable investing universe. To really understand why that is, and by the way, this is the first really trend, if you want to call it a trend, mm-hmm. um, where the growth outside the U.S. is really driving it. So it's typically huh. there's big pension funds within the Nordics, within Europe or EMEA, um, so institutionally in EMEA driving a lot of the adoption. There is a very high expectation, in some cases a mandate, that you have to have a very well thought out ESG process within your portfolio management structure. Is it a specific percentage or is it just something? It's it's most of the market. Institutional really? outside the U.S., yes. Of the $8 trillion or so that's in that market today, most of it is institutional outside the U.S. So as you know, most of the growth is driven by the U.S. and then the adoption happens usually in EMEA first and Asia Pacific second. being? Europe, Middle East, and um, Africa. Okay. Yeah. So Europe pension funds specifically driving deeper in the Nordics is what's driving the overall global growth of sustainable investing. Uh-huh. In the U.S., there has been a, a legacy understanding that we're trying to unwind with SRI. So SRI- Socially as, responsible investing. Exactly. But it's been sort of the days of Calvert where it is exclusionary investing. Right. So, In other words, they take a broad index, they screen out, guns, we don't want guns, we don't want tobacco, stocks, exactly. we don't want gambling, or right. whatever it happens to That's be. That's exactly right. right. And therefore, they when you carve out big segments of the market- in many cases, not all, but many cases, it impacts performance. Sure. So it ha- sort of has this negative um, inertia attached to it that has really evolved. So that's one end of the spectrum. SRI. That's right. The middle part is ESG investing or ESG integration. And what that is, is looking at the environmental, social, and governance factors that impacts a corporation, using that within a portfolio management process. So they really call it the intangibles. Typically, you look at the tangible balance sheet, right? Financial metrics. Adding to that, the intangibles really tells you and gives you a full picture of how the firm is run. Um, Also exposes you to some potential areas of vulnerability or risk. So ESG integration within a portfolio management process is a great risk management tool. I've heard a number of people, in fact, at some of the events we've both attended together, talk about ESG as being misunderstood, that it's really a fundamental screening method to look for risk and control for it. That's for uh, And the perfect example was uh, a lot of the companies that have no diversity, no women on their boards, very little women management, Oh, and they managed to get caught in the Me Too um, debacle, self, self-inflicted wounds. What a coincidental correlation, or apparently not, right? That, that's, that's a fundamental screen, isn't it? That is absolutely right. The other sort of common ones are, you know, the Volkswagen example with its emissions issues. The diesel cheating scandal. That absolutely could have been uncovered if you start to really dig deeper into some of their governance practices. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases with some of the oil companies that have been vulnerable to oil spills. So, you know- Isn't that really all of them though? It, can you screen 
for preventing oil spills. You, you through can ESG? screen for practices, right? Okay. So some have more robust practices than others, mm-hmm. right? So would would you exclude a company from your portfolio, or would you overweight another that you feel is more robust and and more tightly controlled? Mm-hmm. So you know the and then the the further on the spectrum is impact investing. So impact investing is taking a particular cause that you believe in rainforests in Sudan, carbon emissions, very sort of um, narrowly focused uh-huh. and and weighting the portfolio towards that or buying just that. So, you know, a lot of private equity money is directed towards impact investing. Mm-hmm. So, so again, if you look at the spectrum, you have SRI and exclusionary on one side, which again has been sort of Fallen out of favor? Is that a fair way to describe it? Well, I mean, I think there's just a better understanding that people believe that there's a better way to do it, right? right? So, and then there's ESG integration, which was where a lot of the people in U.S. retail are focused, including us. And then there's impact investing, which we actually have a, a, a company that we bought that does custom municipal portfolios, and we allow them to do an impact overlay on that custom municipal portfolio. For equity or fixed income? Fixed income. Really? Yep. That's so you can actually get green bonds. You can. In other yeah, words. Yeah. Quite quite intriguing. So so what do you think is going to be required for ESG to take off? Or um, are we contextualizing it the wrong way and it's just gonna be something that's implemented into the risk screening approach? Yeah. I actually think it's both. Mm-hmm. So let's take the latter first. Uh, I believe that the asset management industry will just become ESG. Just just integrate it like you're no longer an internet company. Everybody uses the internet. Yes, there will there will no longer be ESG or non-ESG uh-huh. because millennials and women demographically are driving the desire and the requirement to incorporate ESG screening within their portfolios mm-hmm. is a big, big driver. The other is data democratization. Most Meaning companies what? now, well, there's a, a variety of different data providers that now collect that information from companies. So now most of the S&P 500 are reporting to data providers on those three measures, their environmental practices, their so- social practices, and their governance practices. So we now have access to all kinds of data to be able to screen on those dimensions. Now, don't you run into the same sort of issue we get with hedge funds reporting performance? Well, if it's good, you report, and if it's not so good, oh, we're not going to make that filing this quarter. Well, so here's the issue. This is this is going to impede the growth. So again, I think to your latter question, we're asset management. I can't say exactly when. It'll, I think it'll be somewhere between five to ten years from now. And you think that's a gradual? Just one day we'll turn around and say, oh, we're all ESG. Yes, I do. I do. And there's a, a variety of people who who agree with that premise. Mm-hmm. The issues today are there's no uniformity. Right. There's a variety of different approaches. Even the data provider, they go at collecting the data and reporting the data in a variety of different ways. So lack of uniformity in data. The second is benchmarking. Right. Mm-hmm. We always want to try to, especially on the active management side, we always sure. want to find a benchmark. So people are struggling with how to benchmark ESG strategies and, you know, uh, consulting organizations like a Mercer who does due diligence on these right. strategies, they're they're struggling to answer that question, which is sort of a traditional method of, you know, rating a particular strategy. So I think it's those two things that are slowing down the growth. But once we, you know, come closer to solving those two, I think the growth will start to uh, be, you know, sort of more profound in U.S. retail. So, so that's the second part of the question, which is, will there still be ESG-focused funds, and and who are going to be the purchasers of these? 
Yeah, I think there will be. Well, first of all, institutions within the U.S. certainly are following Europe. And so, look, I mean, I have to say, just looking at the last six months to a year, most of the RFPs we get, requests for information and of a new strategy for institutional clients, they all have ESG questions in there. And the portfolio management has to be able to describe specifically their ESG process. And uh, so institutions are moving first uh-huh. uh, within the, the U.S. And, you know, retail will follow closer behind once we figure out these issues that I talked about, which is uniformity and benchmarking. What do you think about the dedicated ESG ETFs that have come out? Yeah. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones has one yeah. called Just. Yeah. What What are the ones that you guys Yeah, uh, so we have ESGL and ESGF, and that's mm-hmm. where we're taking our revenue-weighted strategies. L and F, what's the difference? That's um, foreign and domestic. Uh-huh. Local? We Is use that L for L? local, yeah. that's right. I think D was taken right. <laughs> when we a, went to look for a ticker. So, my by the way, my theory is you, you not only need a good investment idea, but you, uh, a good ticker is just crucial. Absolutely. Right? It seems like that makes a giant difference, It does make it? a giant difference. It cuts through all the clutter. Look, yeah. and a lot of this is cutting through the clutter. There's a lot of players who've gotten 3, in the game. 3,000 ETFs. Yeah. Like so ESGF so, is foreign, ESGL yes, is local. Right. And they're they're broad-based. There's a lot out there that are more narrowly based, again, mm-hmm. specifically, as we talked about before, um, based upon you know c- climate change, right. um, climate risk, carbon emissions, things of that nature. We want to be more broad-based. So this is revenue weighted ESG strategies, but there are many, and there are many mutual funds. We have a mutual fund where we partner with Pictay, and it's a geo-environmental- Pictay being? Uh, an ESG shop in Europe. Okay. Is very, uh, they're a sub-advisor to us, and mm-hmm. we like them a lot, actually. Um, and so there are strategies that are coming out in separate account mutual fund and ETF fashion that I think are a good start. Um, you know, again, the institutional clients are looking for more of the separate account, in some cases, mutual funds. Um, mm-hmm. They're not buying the ESG ETFs quite yet. There are people like the UN partnering with firms and developing some of their ESG strategies. And there's big pensions like CalPERS, who partnered with State Street on She. Sure. They, they seeded She to the tune of- Was you that know, CalPERS or CalSTRS? It was CalPERS. So who did CalSTRS- um, I'm not Sure. I kind of remember them being involved, or I could I just don't know. completely. I know Calpers seeded two hundred and fifty billion. Yeah, it was a it was a big chunk of it whatever was. it was. It was a big chunk yes, of it was change. Um, two hundred fifty billion or million. Two hundred fifty million. Excuse yeah, me. it was Thank it you. was definitely a a yes, two hundred fifty million, which is still not an insignificant no, amount exactly, of money. Exactly. So so our mutual friend Dave Nodig is a huge fan of direct indexing. Yes, I'm slowly warming up to the concept. Yeah. And where I see it having so much potential is exactly what you just described, the SMAs for individuals that want to have an overlay of this. How do you see that space developing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I I actually agree with Dave. Um, You know, getting, instead of buying the index, sort of buying the, the, you know, underlying holdings of the index, that creates a great opportunity for tax efficiency, tax harvesting, uh, customization. Uh, There are some firms out there that are very good at it. Uh, Parametric's been around for a while, Mm -hmm. Aperio. There are others. Um, And so, you know, look, 
people are looking for more of those things. Um, and you have more flexibility in getting access to that through direct indexation. It is a little bit more uh, efficient from a cost perspective because you're, you're not paying an index provider three to five basis points. So uh-huh. the, the index l- landscape is changing as well as fees are getting driven down there as well. People are doing self-indexing. There's self-indexing providers out there who are calculation agents. And so the world of indexation as it existed 10 years ago is also changing because of self-indexing and direct indexation. I agree with Dave. I think it's going to grow. Quite quite fascinating. So before we began, we were talking about music. We were. Because you happen to see my picture tweeted of uh, Eagles guitarist Don Felder. I have to tell you, that was a ridiculous amount of fun. I'm sure it was. I'm jealous. Your, your music is my thing. Everyone who knows me knows that music s- is my thing. Me too. I don't know how far apart in age we are. We'll talk about that later. Because you're deceptively, um, you're, you're like, you're hard to pin an age on. Okay. Like That's 39 fair. is always a safe uh, <laughs> I'll a safe take bet. it. I'll take um, it. I said you start, well, that would, I, you said you've been in the business 30 years, and I said you started it at age nine, so 39. that's how there I came to that. Um, but I'm a class, I listen to a lot of stuff from jazz to classical, but really, uh, and a lot of punk and reggae, but I'm really a classic rock guy. What What's your musical over? Classic rock. Okay. You know, classic rewind or classic Deep vinyl tracks. on, on uh, XM. Yeah, right. Exactly. So you're not a coffee house sort of... No, actually, it depends on the mood. I like right. coffee house as well. Thank that's, you for bringing that that's up. A, uh, Absolutely. Well, if you're a Jack Johnson fan, that's a great sort Jack of Johnson, uh, a yeah. great sort of channel. Um, so I've had, I don't know how this has worked out. It's been a dumb accident, but I've had a series of guitarists. So it's been Don Felder and Steve Miller. Everybody knows wow. who Steve Miller is. Lawrence Juber uh-huh. and John Pizzarelli. So those are the four... Guitarists I've had in. I, I should reach out to Jack Johnson because I love his Why writing. Not? He's a great. Uh... So these things so, always come up completely. So Derek randomly. Trucks. Can we talk about Derek sure. Trucks? Oh my gosh. So you're a Southern sort of roots. So look, I mean, I also love Southern rock, but my two, so I think Derek Trucks is one of the most gifted guitarists, and you know he. So that's your pick for greatest guitarist. Well, ever? no, he actually he's not. He's he's sort of next generation my pick, but my two picks, which I can't decide on, is. Yeah. Uh, Carlos Santana. I love Santana. He's technically a brilliant guitarist and a very good songwriter. I don't know if many people would put him up as in the top five because it's usually the hyper-technical guys like Joe Satriani or... Go down those uh, Montrose or and of course you know we could talk about Clapton or Jimmy. Well, so that's my second. Or, or, so, or, so, or so my second or, is Clapton. I would probably to your point. I'd probably edge Clapton over Santana a little bit. Right. But I got to tell you, Derek Trucks is he, you know he he's he's I think going to rival everybody. He's right. just a little bit younger. I asked. Um, by the way, if you like that sort of swampy Southern, are you familiar with J.J. Um, Gray and the Mofro? No. Oh, so that's wow. a band you have to check Thank out. Thank you. It's swampy, bluesy, southern okay. roots rock. And they have a number of great albums, but you can never go wrong with that first album. Is J.J. Gray and the Mofro. I will They're do that just, today. Um, sort of like a southern version of, do you remember the album uh, Thick Freakness by, um, I'm drawing a blank on the band's name, but that... Um, Black Keys. God oh, damn. sure. That's their first album, oh, and, sure. I, okay. and and I and uh, I so so I asked 
Henley, and let me, we can talk about music for hours, but I know. let me wrap this up. I asked Henley, who do you think, um, what sort of guitarist do you like? Who do you really appreciate? And he said, I love the triple threats. I love people who are great songwriters, can sing, and are really good performers. And I knew exactly where he was going to go with that. I thought he was going to say Clapton, but um, he kind of surprised me and said, well, this generation, it's John Mayer, is that Uh, triple threat. And I said, that's because that's, he's this generation's Eric Clapton. That's right. So so who else do you- Again, so I don't forget, I put Derek right up there. Yeah. But, you know, and again, I'm a big Allman Brothers fan. Right. You know, I mean, that story, you know, is has been a bit of a sad story, but... Of course. I've Dwayne Allman to... taught Don Felder to play slide guitar. Oh, How's, and they're all wow. from... The music scene from Gainesville yeah. was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So it was Absolutely. him, and I think it was Stephen Stills, and Tom yeah. Petty, and yeah. Yeah. it was just a, like, a like wait, why are all those people coming from Gainesville, Florida? Right. And then right. Dwayne Allman on top of that. Yeah. Yeah, so, and then of course you know Greg just died, which was a very sad mm-hmm. day for me. But um, so you know, Eat a Peach was my favorite Allman Brothers album. I remember of all time. that was giant yeah. when I was yeah. in high school. Yeah. Giant. Yeah, yeah. That exactly. was uh, who else do you listen to today? Give me a newer. So who do I listen? To? You know, today I have to tell you, I'm sort of evolving a little bit to you know sort of this newer country. Right, um, such as? So, you know, Dirk Bentley, um, Zach Brown. Zach Brown, I know. Dirk Bentley, I don't know that yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of those guys. It's so, got a little more of an edge than traditional Yeah, country. so No Shoes Radio. I mean, Kenny Chesney, mm-hmm. obviously, is terrific. Um, so, you know, I so I'm really pushing myself uh, to appreciate other genres. And I, I didn't like the old twangy country stuff. Right. Chet Atkins sort of, well, he was a brilliant guitarist, but... The I know exactly. I love yeah. my dog died. My truck exactly. got stolen. My <laughs> wife left me. Exactly. The, that so there's a really. Do you ever? We were talking about XM Satellite before. Do you ever play with Pandora? I, I Pandora. That's my actual music of choice. I have Sonos in my home. So do I. And I, and I go to Pandora. So what I yeah. love about Pandora is if you want to discover something new. Yeah. Like you take those three newer country. Right. Create a channel. Call it whatever you want, new country, and seed it with five songs that you like, and it's really great for music discovery. I'm always hearing things, wow, what's that? I haven't heard that. So it's a fun thing to play with. That's right, yeah. All right, back to to ETFs. (laughs) Sorry sorry to drag you back to- Like you uh, said, I could talk music all day long. Same same here. It's, It's just fascinating. I um anything aside from country rock and uh, classic rock. Do you listen to jazz? Do you listen to reggae? Uh, I do. I listen to both. But I have to say, my my world is really dominated by those two today. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I used to listen to a lot more classical, right? Um, than I do today. I've always listened to jazz. Miles Davis is my hero. Really, Miles Davis is my hero. For he sure. is not. I always warn people who are like, "You're you're a jazz head. What what should I listen to?" Should I listen to Miles Davis? Not the most accessible. Like I always say, start start slow. Walk before you run. Like who, who is your walk slow person? Jerry Mulligan, okay. um, like Coltrane. I, oh, I, I build Coltrane. a little further out, yeah. halfway between. Yeah. Even Thelonious Monk. Um, um, Paul Desmond, uh, okay. you can't, that's really totally accessible, very okay. easy for okay. most people. If, okay. you, if you listen to like Time Out, yeah. Or yeah. so there's there's yeah. a way to to yeah. ease into jazz. Yeah. Yeah. But if you start with Bitches Brew or 
you know, that's a tough. Yeah, uh, it's it like is. it is. It's I the agree. equivalent of starting out in rock music by listening that's to fair. Frank Zappa. Yeah, it's like that's wait fair. or Jethro th- Tull. Yeah, even that's Tull fair. is is you know you can listen to. Uh, you know, Aqualung or Locomotive right. Breath. Gosh. Yeah, that's straightforward oh, Mary, rock and roll. But it's hard to yeah. find, outside of Joe's Garage, it's hard to find a Zappa song that you could just slide right into and say, I'm interested in rock music. Play something for me. Because right, right. um, although, since we you mentioned some of your favorite guitarists, if you ever have a chance, get the Zappa album, Shut Up and Play Your Guitar. Y-E-R, guitar. Okay. It's just three discs of him doing leads. Okay. And he's amazing. People don't realize what a spectacular technical musician he was. Yeah, no, I didn't. And if I could just make one plug for for a female. Sure. The modern-day Bonnie Raitt is Derek Truck's uh, wife. Oh, really? Susan Tedeschi. Uh-huh. So that they have I know a band. the name they for have, sure. They have, a, they have a band, Tedeschi Trucks. She oh, okay. Is, you would not know the difference. Uh-huh. I think she's got more soul. Bonnie Raitt has a ton of soul, but if if you can believe it, Susan Tedeschi even has more soul than Bonnie Raitt. So I would I you know, I need to make my female plug before we move on. All right, la- last female guitarist um, reference. Go to YouTube. I can't remember the girl's name, and I say girl because she's like eleven. There is this girl on YouTube who just shreds. It's unbelievable. There's probably multiple people in that age group who are just spectacular guitarists, and it's mind blowing. You just okay. Go, I'll send you some links. Okay. Some of them are just like what? All right. Okay. So so now <laughs> now back to ETF. We gotta drag ourselves away from music. Right. Well, because you know, I this is a conversation over a beer. Um, the one question I forgot to ask you during the broadcast portion that I meant to ask is you began your career in 1987, right? What was stock market crash? Yeah, what yes. was that like I've when you And by the way, there are a few people who I know of. David Rosenberg is one and I'm trying yeah. to remember who the other person was who literally begin their career that fall and bang, yeah, right yeah, into the fall. I started it, I think, at the end of May or June, but okay. yeah, it was that fall. Um, I mean, certainly, look, I mean, it was it was a great learning experience <laughs> for me, right? I mean, I, I, am I right? It was at 500 points? It was, you know, percentage-wise, it was big. 23% but, and yeah, I'm trying, 22.8%, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. I, I think it was 600 and something points, it? but it's easy enough I to look I don't know why up. 500 sticks in my mind, but... Um, Which we call today a Tuesday. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's, that's exactly. Nothing. That's why. That's why I brought it up. It's it's sort of interesting to look back, and you know, it's a blip in today's world. But um, but look, so I wasn't really tied to the market at that time. Remember, I was at Chase Manhattan Bank, and I was doing all these cost studies. I still was domestic at this time. I wasn't yet in Europe. Um, By the way, you were so, correct. Five hundred eight points. Thank you. I I don't know why that stuck in my head, but you know, I was there. So you know, these things are important. Um, and so it was a great learning experience for me. I was still learning about the market, right? And so, uh, you know, Chase Manhattan Bank, you know, took had some exposure, so they obviously took a hit, but recovered. Sure. I think Don Boudreau was the the CEO or president at the time. Um, but uh, so, you know, there was a lot to learn in terms of the, you know, how the market factors into sort of the you know, the the capital markets and what a driver they are and mm-hmm. why that happened and how to avoid it and how to put, you know, st- stops in place by the New York Stock Exchange. And so I was young and, 
you know, wet behind the ears, as they say. And so it was just a great learning experience for me. Don Boudreaux, why is that name familiar? Is is he still around and publishing? No, he's been retired a long okay, time. Okay, so I'm thinking yeah, of somebody else. He's been else. retired a long time. So you, you looked at it as a uh, learning experience. I did. I didn't have any personal exposure. I had no money. Right. So, you know, it didn't affect me Those personally. are the best crashes. <laughs> exactly. Now the next one. I was in, by the way, I was in grad school and I watched it with such clinical yeah. detach- detachment. Right. It was right. like, oh, that seems to be kind of interesting. Yeah. No, I was fascinated. Yeah. But, you know, I thankfully was at a place where I could learn more about it. And that, that was really my first, like, ouch when you, when you, when you, um, accidentally, you know, touch a burner on the stove. Right. It was sort of like, a, the, you know, learning about the capital markets by being stung by it, but thankfully it didn't affect me How personally. How about 2000? How did 2000 that, did that leave a mark? Me. Yes, and so did 2008. Obviously, 2008 was the worst, but No, that was the best one of all. 2000 left a mark. Yeah? Yeah. So 2008 was a fabulous learning experience. Can yes. we describe it as that? Yes. Because it was... Uh, we'll we'll take that off, Mike. I, I found that to be of all the market crashes yeah. I lived through, the one that was most yeah. fascinating. Yeah. yeah, no, it certainly was. There's millions of stories that have come out of that one. It's Countless. really shaped. It's shaped, you know, a whole generation. Absolutely. You alluded to this earlier. Let me circle back to that. My pet theory is all of the the scandals, the analyst scandal, the IPO spin, all those things kind of led mom and pop to say, you know, this Wall Street thing is, you know, I'm just going to give the money to Vanguard and be done. I kind of felt like the cherry on that cake was the 0809 crash, but you even took it further. You said this really drove people into passive. Explain why. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, part of it is they sort of didn't want to deal with it anymore. Just let me let me just give it to an index. Let me give my money right. to an index. They didn't trust the institutions that were running their money in mm-hmm. a lot of cases. Especially the ones that got bailed out. That's that had exactly to right. impact the thought process, That's right? That's exactly right. And so I think it, it just shocked people. People woke up. I think previous to that, they dabbled in ETFs. Post 2008 and 2009, when when we finally recovered, I think they made it a a prominent part of their portfolio construction. And part of it, I think, was a risk mitigation, at least from what they understood to be more of a risk mitigation. Right. Because of, you know, I mean, look, at the time I was at Alliance Bernstein, uh, Bernstein, that part of Alliance Bernstein's deep value, and, um, you know, the Bernstein managers, specifically, and Lou Sanders is an investor himself, the CEO at the time, they rode financial services down all the way to the bottom. Right. Um, because they were looking for that. You know, they talk about the sustainability of earnings with growth companies, and they talk about the recoverability of earnings right. with uh, with value companies. And so, you know, fundamental active managers, I think at the time, were just riding the wave to see if they can pick up some assets at the cheap. And that was a very, very tough ride for a lot of investors. So I think part of it was trust. I think a lot of it was risk mitigation. Mm-hmm. Quite, quite interesting. So... Uh, again, looking at the lack of faith in the institutions, is that something that eventually comes back, or is that a permanent scar and people change their behavior for a generation? Yeah, yeah. No, I think ten years later, I think it is bouncing back, and I think part of it is you know government led because of everything they've put in place in terms of safeguards. Meaning the the regulatory environment or the Federal Reserve environment. 
Uh, I think the regulatory environment mm-hmm. in terms of the requirements that they have. So they forced some of it. And I think CEOs, I mean, now on the executive committees of organizations, whether it's a bank or asset managers, the chief risk officer reports to the CEO. And that wasn't a position that, that necessarily existed it didn't, 15 it years didn't, ago. It didn't. So, and I agree with that, right? I mean, the general counsel reports to the CEO. Why shouldn't the chief risk officer? It's, it's We are stewards of our clients' capitals. We are mm-hmm. fiduciaries. We need to take that particular function seriously. And so, you know, whether it's the different governance structures for running an ETF business or a fundamental active business, I think whether it was regulatory, you know, pushed uh, or forced upon or firms just taking this more seriously and it becoming a key role of the CEO, I think that certainly uh, those institutions are starting to earn back trust 10 years later. Do Do we run the risk when we elevate the chief risk officer to that C suite? with the CEO's ear of stifling innovation or making companies risk averse? Sure, no, and I think that's a great question. And I think it has to, and we we talk about this a lot at Oppenheimer Funds, and I think thankfully we've struck the balance because the portfolio management teams um, on the fundamental active side are, you know, there's a little bit of a push-pull there, right? So... Our chief investment officer, Krishna Mamani, um, you know, he he works very, very closely with our chief risk officer on behalf of making sure that we don't do just that, that we give the prudent degree of freedom. Now, how do you define prudent degree of freedom? No leverage. That's how I define it. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know. I mean, really, it's so much easier to get into trouble when you're running 40 is, to 1. There is. If you're putting out ETFs that are more interesting in, in the way they're assembled and built, and they're not relying on a ton of leverage, there's really very modest risk there, right? The product works or it doesn't, it finds an audience or it doesn't, it accumulates assets or it doesn't, but none of your ETFs are ever going to blow up Oppenheimer. That's I, that's yeah, a non-issue. No, we would never right? play. We would never. I don't want to say play that game, but that that wasn't our that was not our space. And I agree with you. It's tough. I don't think investors understand it. Mm-hmm. I don't think they understand the impact of the leverage they're taking on. It's easy if you're fifty to one and you drop two percent, you're gone. You're done. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like wait, a two percent yeah. drop wipes me out. Oh, I don't want leverage. Yeah, that's yeah, a bad yeah, thing. Yeah, and. Yeah, yeah. I think everybody, that was the one big takeaway I thought everybody learned from uh, from the financial crisis. But you're saying risk is now thought of a little more differently at financial institutions. Absolutely. And again, part of it is because they knew they needed to, to mm-hmm. build back trust with clients. I mean, again, back to RFPs. You know, in the very beginning of the RFP, it asks about their risk management process, whether it's the firm overall from a centralized perspective or their portfolio management specifically, you've got to articulate your risk management process. And we have that in running our rules-based strategies. We, sure. we have that in there as well, right? And index providers have that as well. So it's an important part of the story. You know, again, we are stewards of capital and we are fiduciaries and we need to take that role seriously. No, to, to say the least. Um, the dominance in the ETF space by, uh, I almost want to say trilogy, but really it's Vanguard and BlackRock. The are the Yeah. State Street is is up there, but it the two big ones are really, um, well, the muscle in the space. How is it that this sector has evolved where it's such a uneven distribution, a winner-take-all distribution. 
I mean, look, you know, those three firms got started way before everybody else. As you know, SBY is over 25 years old. Right. So, right. I mean, there, there, there is, there is a a advantage. First by, mover advantage. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it is that you know they certainly won over the early adopters of ETF specifically, um, and they grew their passive business for the first decade. So they just had a giant head start, and everybody else is playing catch up. I mean, there's well, and then the players that got in the market after them have a belief set, many of them, that, you know, we actually can evolve our fundamental active franchise. We can do enhanced index. We can do active ETFs. So they, they've sort of bypassed the passive to go to alternatively weighted or active, right. something more active. And so there's not a lot of, unless you are putting out, you know, these vehicles that are for free that you use to allocate internally within your organization, whether you're using them to build model portfolios and charging an overlay fee, people aren't jumping on the passive bandwagon by which State Street Vanguard and iShares got a very strong early start too. So, and most of the pie of the flows every single year go to that. So, there are people who are dabbling around the edges to um, try to offer a more sort of, um, you know, fully built out suite to their clients, but nobody has the scale or can buy or build the scale in a short period of time where they can even make a dent mm-hmm. in the market share that, that those three organizations have. And I do believe a lot of it was the head start that they got. Makes sense. Before I get to my favorite questions, there's one other question I wanted to ask you about. So you were at F squared um, when they ran into the little difficulties. What was your role and what was your reaction when you heard about yeah. what was happening elsewhere? Yeah, so uh, that was a big segment of the market, as you recall, ETF strategist segment, which is defined by you know model portfolios where at least 50% or more has to be within ETFs. It grew to over 100 billion. Um, actually, F squared was a big client of iShares. Uh-huh. So that's how I knew them. Um, they probably gave iShares directed six to eight billion a year. Wow. That number might be slightly off. Um, but anyway, so I they had outsourced everything and they wanted to build uh, their own discretionary business internally. So I was hired as the president of F squared Capital and I had to build um, our, our trading system, hire a head trader, uh, put in place a portfolio management system with the client service um uh, group, uh, assemble a client service group, sales to talk to Wells Fargo's separate account platform business. So I built that Lots whole of business. moving parts. Lots of moving parts. It was really fun. Uh, we grew to almost $30 billion. But wow. the SEC came in in the summer of, I hope I get this right, summer of 2013 to do a routine audit right. and had discovered that the track record we were marketing, and this is really important, uh, the track record we were marketing was went back to 2001. Mm-hmm. The time period in question was 2008 back to 2001. In 2008, the CEO of F Squared bought a signal from a firm and was told that the signal was run against live client money. Right. So therefore, was a live signal. 2008 forward, uh, that uh, was now in the in the domain of F Squared, and they ran that money uh, that signal against live client money and live client portfolios. It was GIPS compliant. It was audited mm-hmm. by a big accounting firm. So the SEC had no issue with the track record from 2008 forward. That was valid. So it was all based on the purchase and what exactly. was represented exactly. as that's that was the crux of the matter. Wow. So you know wow, there was I would a disagreement. Yeah. So there was a disagreement. Certainly the CEO of F squared continued to fight that that it was misrepresented, but the SCC does what the SEC 
did. Right. I mean, they get trade blotters and they get everything they need to do to subpoena people and right. get to the heart of the matter. Even it if it is represent, if it's misrepresented to you and you go out and represent it, that's what they're going to hang their hat on. That's exactly. So, hey, you relied on someone who lied to you. You're bad. Right. So right? you should have done deeper due diligence or whatever you right. know, the theory is. So. Unfortunately, you know, we I, I still believe to this day that what we were doing and the way in which we were doing it, which was the alpha sector products, was a prudent way to run a portfolio. Mm-hmm. Clients certainly agreed with that as we grew very quickly. However, um, once they slapped the fine on and they got rid of our CEO and sort of banned him from the industry, and one of the board members came off of the board to be the interim CEO, we really needed to kind of wind the firm down. Uh, there is was it, too much damage done. I was going to say, is that recoverable, even if it's an innocent mistake? Yeah. And I I don't have any information whether it is or isn't. Yeah. But when the SEC drops that sort of hammer, right? You, is there anything that could be done to done to save a company at that point, or is it just all bets are off? Yeah. You know, look. So to your point, Barry, all 200 employees, approximately 200 employees, were completely innocent. Right. And thankfully, the industry recognized that and gave everybody a free option, and everybody has has gone on to be into really great jobs at other firms. Um, but I think what happened is the trust was just eroded. Sure. But from the clients, so clients were starting to pull money, um, and it was it was too difficult to save. And so we what we did is we hired a banker to do an asset purchase agreement, and so sell the remaining assets off. And um, you know we just it was it was too difficult. So but, you know, look, I, I what I learned through that process was uh, I mean it was excruciating certainly. Sure. Um, but um, you know managing through crisis. And trying to, you know, keep everybody on the boat until such time that you got to get everybody safely off the boat. Um, and just being really open and honest with clients. I mean, clients would take me out to dinner and say, what really happened? And I had to say to them, I actually have no idea. I mean, I wasn't here. I joined in 2013. Right. Um, but again, be, be, uh, seek solace in knowing that 2008 forward, since F squared has been running your money, it's been, it's been done in, in a, in a prudent way. Hmm. So it was tough, but you know. That's an amazing story. Yeah, it's it's certainly the most excruciating chapter of my career. It, it's fortuitous that everybody below the CEO managed to continue yeah, their career. Everybody's doing great. Without that being a black mark. No, so, no, everybody understands it now. It was sort of isolated to the CEO. Huh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, jump to our favorite questions. These are the things I ask all of our guests. Let's start out with what was the first car you ever owned, your make and model? Haha. Uh-huh. 1974 Oof. Volkswagen Super Beetle. Really? I had a Super Beetle yes, also. Yes. I love They were indestructible. That car. Absolutely. I had 300,000 miles on mine. I had over 200. A, yeah, 68, not a 70. 74. Uh, it was a Super Beetle. 74. By then, they had brakes and, yeah. and radios and air yeah. conditioning. I didn't have any of that. Mine was light blue, which, God, I can't I had a light blue one also. <laughs> I had a white bug and then a, a light blue Super Beetle. Yeah. The Super Beetle, for about six months, I was broke and did not have a battery. And I would start park on a hill and just drop the clutch. And that's how I would start the car. Oh, my gosh. And, it's um literally so yeah. so I had no heat so that was tough. They, but they, anyway, but they were pretty pretty indestructible. Absolutely. Until the floorboards rusted out and it became like a Flintstone. That's <laughs> right. Right. I had one of those. Yeah, for sure. absolutely. So tell us the most important thing people don't know about Sharon French. Yeah, it was funny. The word important. I mean, the most important thing in my life for sure is that I'm a mom. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I think most people know. I would that. guess. Yes, yeah. I think most people know that. Um, what else is important? Um, I mean, some things people don't know. I don't know how important it is. I, I have a titanium hip. 
So a lot of people call me the bionic woman. When you go through airport security, does that set stuff yes, off? Yes, it does. I have to. I have to do the walkthrough thing where you hold your arms. I above hate your the head. naked machine. That is the yeah. only non-invasive imaging technology <laughs> that has not been FDA approved. And you'll notice when they set the button, they kind of lean back, lean lean away from it, because yeah. they know that stuff is going to kill them. Yeah, so yeah, I'm I'm yeah. the beauty of uh, TSA pre or even better clear right. is that you don't have to do the naked machine which does god but, knows but what because it does of to my hip and I carry no I carry a card in my in my wallet that shows the hip I have a striker hip and my doctor's name and everything I have no right. choice um, but I actually just thinking about it and this could set up a whole this could set off a whole another series of questions an important fact about me that nobody knows that I just found out yeah. and it's a little bit of a family controversy family of origin my my five brothers and sisters or six of us is I did uh, 23 and me Right. And my whole life, I thought I was a purebred Irish right. woman. Uh, apparently not. Uh, I am 25% Ashkenazi Jew. Really? Yes. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So we had an unbelievable you know, family conversation over Thanksgiving and made my mother, unfortunately my dad has passed, but we made my mother take the test and she, surprisingly, yeah. is 50% Ashkenazi wow, Jew, which really? means one of her parents has to be 100%. That's, right, that's right. So, you know. And she doesn't know which. She doesn't. They're, they're both deceased, but uh, we, we think it's my grandfather, but, you know, somebody went astray or- This is post-World War II or maybe not? So they were born in uh, the- Because after the war, the people 30s. stopped talk, some people yeah, stopped talking. they about. were born in 1908. My grandparents were born in 1905, 06, mm-hmm. around there. So anyway, so that's an important fact that, quite frankly, I didn't even know until right. recently. If you want to have some fun, Google Ashkenazi Jewish Nobel recipients. It's There's just vastly disproportionate, and I don't know what that's about, but okay. it's kind of it's fascinating. I just went to the Nobel Museum in Stockholm in yeah. the fall. It was, it was fabulous. So I can I'm imagine. Sort of, yeah, I learned a lot. Um, tell us about some of your early mentors. Who... Yes. Helped shape your career. Yes, yes. So, um, Bob Shulman, mm-hmm. Robert Shulman. So he was an executive at E.F. Hutton, Shearson Lehman Brothers. Uh, I think he left before the Smith Barney acquisition to become president and CEO of Tremont Advisors. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he was a very, very shrewd, tough boss. He had, I had moved into a number of different positions throughout my decade at that organization and really, really tough. Ran, ran a number of different business units, new product development. He actually was uh, one of the early uh, executives who ran the Smith Barney Consulting Group, mm-hmm. um, which was ultimately sold off to, I think, Bank of New York uh, Mellon. Um, and he was tough as nails. And so the reason, and we still meet for coffee and, and uh, lunch today. He's retired um, but he was he was instrumental to me because he was so tough I didn't need coddling I needed to understand how to be better and do better and um, help he gave me all kinds of runway and so my reputation today is sort of somebody who can you know fixer <laughs> right that I was a question I didn't get to your reputation is yeah. something's messed up Send Sharon yeah. and she'll fix yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and it's and it's fixing and growing or doing the diagnostic in order to remove the obstacle for growth. I mean, mm-hmm. I I t- hope that at some point people see me as somebody who drives profitable growth. But uh, that was Bob. And that was that is who gave me those early, you know, sort of runways and taught me how to go at the heart of the issue. 
um, and keep running harder, keep running stronger. I mean, I certainly, he wasn't, a lot of people were afraid of him. Um, so I wouldn't say that he was the mentor in my life who taught me how to socialize issues and how to get the right key stakeholders involved and get their buy-in. That came later. Right. Um, I had a female mentor at Alliance Bernstein. I had a male mentor also at Alliance Bernstein, who I think helped me along in that regard as well. Um, so I'm a big believer in mentors. I'm a big believer in sponsorship. Um, and I have mentored a, a ton of mostly women in my career, mm-hmm. which I continue to do and I really believe in. Because at this stage of my career, Barry, to me, it's all about paying it forward. I mean, I I still have a lot more to accomplish, but it's all about inspiring the next generation, which I started a a unit called University Outreach within Women in ETFs, Mm -hmm. which is actually going to universities at the undergraduate level and mentoring in them and raising their awareness around asset management and ETF specifically because a lot of a lot of women who are going into business uh, have nowhere to go from there uh-huh. and business is hard for women financial services is still pretty difficult it's getting better um, but I, I really want to inspire the next generation at their undergraduate level and then mentor younger females who are incredibly uh, smart and promising within this industry what about investors who influence the way you look at assets, markets, yeah. and investing? When I was young, it was Bill Sharp and Harry Markowitz, uh-huh. right? Modern Could Portfolio do, do Theory. do a lot worse than both of them. Yes, 1962. So the only startup I did in my career was Empower. That's when I left uh, my wealth management brokerage uh, experience in New York and moved to San Francisco right after AOL went public in 1996. Right. You remember that? That sure. really started the whole internet place. Um, and so... Um, that startup experience was was really, really strong, and we partnered with Harry Markowitz. Our competition was Financial Engines, who partnered with uh, Bill Sharp. You're right. Um, I mean, more recently, um, over the that was probably my second decade. My third decade was more uh, Fama and French at the mm-hmm. University of Chicago, and a lot of their factor work. I really do believe in the persistence of factors as a more uh, precise way to get at um, the key drivers of return. Right. Eugene Fama at Chicago. I think Ken, Ken French, French is at Dartmouth. Yes, exactly. Currently at yeah. Tuck School. I'm not that's positive. That's right. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. Uh, that's quite interesting. Um, everybody's favorite question. What are some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, investing related or whatever? Yeah. So I'm, I really love to learn uh, about people. Mm-hmm. So I love reading biographies. Um, and so I ju- the one I just read was I Love Capitalism by Ken Langone. Oh, really? Ken, oh, it was fabulous. He's a really interesting, albeit crusty guy. I mean, he's sort of like a classic curmudgeonly. How'd the book read? He was scrappy. Scrappy. That's the better word. Scrappy. Forget crusty. Scrappy. Scrappy. I right? mean, I could not put it down. I read it in three days. Home Depot is just an amazing well, success story. I mean, he did story. so many other things other really? than Home Depot. Absolutely. I mean, he put capital together on Wall Street. That's right. what he did. Uh-huh. He was scrappy. He was fearless. He was amazing. Um, so anyway, so um, I just read Michelle Obama's book, which I mm-hmm. thought was great. Becoming also read that one in three days. Um, Catherine Hepburn, um, certainly Michael Bloomberg. I'm a giant Catherine Hepburn fan. Yeah, I was this I. her biography it or her autobiography? Biography. It yeah. was her biography. Who who wrote that? Uh, and um, oh gosh, you're testing me. I, I just don't am, I just don't because there's a dozen Catherine Hepburn biographies yes, out there. Yes. Um, 
I don't remember, Barry. I'm sorry. I'm, I don't I'm, remember. Email to me. I'll add it to the list okay. when we go. That, and, uh, but even Ann Keller, I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, so I'm fascinated by people. So my, my, uh, my favorite books are actually reading, you know, the biogra- biography channel I love to listen mm-hmm. to. I mean, I certainly have read a lot about the Grateful Dead, going back to music, <laughs> you know, Jerry Garcia, right. um, Phil Collins. So I, I typically read, and not that's all a the weird, time. That's a weird juxtaposition the dead into phil collins yeah, I know. not exactly well, i've got an eclectic you know right. palette I think see we, i go back to I the early days of, of genesis and peter gabriel oh, sure. not that i not that i mind um Gosh, super tramp genesis oh, that whole that was high school for me that was yeah. my freshman year in college <laughs> uh breakfast in all right America. good so you're older than me <laughs> a little a touch uh, just a touch um so what do you tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience are there any other books before we jump to no, the next one? No, that's, that's good for right, now. I mean, so, certainly I read other things other than just biographies, but I think that's the thought I'd like to leave you with. Okay. So let's discuss a time you failed, uh, business or not, and what you learned from the experience. Gosh. Okay. So it, it, it's sort of business and personal at the same time. Uh-huh. So during that period of time where I was in San Francisco, where I was working for Empower, and we were we were growing fast. Again, Harvard Business Case Study, loved it. We ended up selling the business to Morningstar ultimately in 2001. But um, I was running global sales. I was one of, uh, I was, you know, I was on the management team, employee, you know, fifth member of the management team. Um, and we had built our business domestically and I was starting to establish our business globally. So we I set up a, I was going back and forth from San Francisco to Tokyo and San Francisco to London, put up joint ventures in London to grow that and build a subsidiary bricks and mortar in, um, sorry, in Asia. We did joint ventures in London. We put up a subsidiary. We had, we were a finalist for, so Mizuho uh, mm-hmm. really came together in 2001. It was IBJ, Industrial Bank of Japan, Daiichi Kanga, DKB, and Fuji Bank. Mm-hmm. Those three individual banks came together to form Mizuho. While they were forming, they were looking for online investment advisory services. We were, as one of many things on this platform they were building, we were a finalist. There was two of us. At that time, I was pregnant with my daughter. Right. Very pregnant. Well, started out not so pregnant, but over the course of eight months, I That's, ended that very pregnant. That tends to be the progression, exactly. right? And um, I needed to, and as you, if you understand the Japanese culture, they are very much into relationships, uh-huh. right? Not that we aren't in the US, but even more so, much deeper. So when you start with them, you have to end with them, or you might as well not compete. And so I was the one who had to hot fly to Tokyo to do this finalist presentation, and I was eight months Out pregnant. Out to here, right? Yeah, right. So, P.S., forge the doctor's note. Bad idea. Um, <laughs> I remember at the time, my husband and my son was two, saying, you know, if you go, you don't get it. We will not be here when you get back. Do you understand that when you fly to New York or London or New York, you're flying over land? So right. if you go into labor, you have to land the plane and right. you can land the plane. You can't land the plane when you're over the Pacific. Right, that's right. So stupid me, I went. Thankfully, the, the, the story ends well. We did win the business and I didn't go into labor, but... I went into labor prematurely two weeks after I got back. Right. And my daughter was fine. She was six pounds. My husband and little boy was were still there, although he didn't talk to me for the following month. But the lesson <laughs> learned, and Barry, I, I said that I mentor people and women, and I, many of the things I said to them is, look, avoid the mistakes I made. Right. What was I thinking? Our number one priority is ourselves, our health, and our family. Right. That was the stupidest thing I ever did. I put my life at risk and my unborn child's life at risk. Wow. Like, 
stupid. That that's yeah. that's a that's uh, pretty bad. That's a horrifying yeah, uh, yeah. horrifying story. Again, it worked out, but still. Yeah. What do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? Listen to music. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, I'm very uh, sporty, as you say. Mm-hmm. So I I used to run, but now I have a new hip, so I can't do that anymore. But I do yoga. I do you know stand up paddle boarding. I ski. Um, I I. You know, snorkel. I paraglide. I I do anything. I don't say no to anything. I don't scuba dive. I've got to get my over my fear of scuba diving. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm very sporty. So you know, I'll I'll be on a softball team, or I'll, you know, um, I'll I'll always say yes if anybody wants. My son just jumped jumped out of a plane. I don't know if I'm going to do that, but yeah, the, uh, the risk reward on that one is not yeah, my yeah. my favorite. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So our last questions because we have to wrap. Um, what sort of advice would you give any millennial who was thinking of going into a career in finance? Yeah. So look, it's interesting. Millennials, you and I grew up with the mutual fund in the 80s. Uh, Millennials are growing up with ETFs, right? Right. And they're growing up with digital advice. Um, So one of the things I like about that is it's, it's a lot of the burden of that falls on their shoulders in terms of how they learn to um, you know, think about portfolio construction. Um, So I think data and I mean, look, we're sitting at Bloomberg. This is the epicenter of data and intelligence. Right. I am big into how the financial world meets the technology world. So I certainly, my passion and my love deep down is asset management, but I love the intersection of finance and technology. So I certainly would um, you know, uh, advise them in that direction. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 30 years ago when you first started? I, I wish I understood risk a little bit more. You know, I sort of thought trees grew to the sky back then, and mm-hmm. you know, I think I was a little bit idealistic at that time. So I'm, I'm, I've, I've been sobered and I've been burnt. I mean, I've been through three market corrections that are pretty significant: eighty-seven, two thousand, two thousand one, and two thousand eight, uh, as well as market timing scandals and all the things you mentioned. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm much more practical now, much more pragmatic, and uh, I wish I knew that back then. I think a lot of y- the younger generation, especially millennials, are super idealistic. But having been through what I've been through throughout my career, you know, I wish I learned more earlier on about, you know, managing risk better. Hmm. Really, really interesting answer. We have been speaking with Sharon French. She is the head of Beta Solutions at Oppenheimer Funds. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out Apple iTunes uh, and look up or down an inch where you can see any of the other 250 or so such conversations we've had Previously, uh, you can find that at iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg.com. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Medina Parwana uh, is our audio engineer slash producer. Atika Valbrun is our uh, project director. Uh Michael Boyle is our booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.